Hey everyone, and welcome to a perpetual feast here on the Circe Institute Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, a producer here at the Circe Podcast Network. And before we kick it over to the show with Wes Callahan and Andrew Kern, I just need to say a quick word from our sponsor. Roman Roads Media is a publisher of classical Christian curriculum designed for homeschoolers and homeschool co-ops. And they're back this year with a giveaway for Circe Podcast listeners. Each episode of Perpetual Feast, they're going to be giving away one of the 16 units from Wes Callahan's Old Western Culture Series, a high school video course that guides you through the great books of Western Civ. Complete with workbooks, discussion, questions, and readers, Wes Callahan draws from decades of teaching experience as he tells the story of Western civilization, integrating history, literature, theology, politics, philosophy, and so much more. Here's how to enter this giveaway. When this episode is posted on our Facebook page, on the Cersei Facebook page, leave a comment saying which unit of the Old Western Culture you would choose if you win. One of the comments will be drawn at random three days after the episode is posted. To browse the available titles in the Old Western Culture series, please visit www.romanroadsmedia.com. So thanks to our good friends over at Roman Roads Media for sponsoring this season of A Perpetual Feast, uh, especially with Wes Callahan being one of the co-stars of this show. We are really honored to continue partnering with Roman Roads and with Wes Callahan to make great content for you. We hope you really enjoy this season. Uh, So without further ado, I'll kick it over to Andrew Kern and Wes Callahan and their ongoing conversation of the works of Homer. Enjoy. While these fought on around the well-benched vessel, Patroclus came and stood by Achilles, the people's shepherd, shedding warm tears like a spring of black-sourced water that sends its dark stream coursing down some deserted rock face. At the sight of him, swift-footed noble Achilles felt pity and addressed himself to him, speaking with winged words. Why are you weeping, Patroclus, like a girl? A small child who runs to her mother's side and begs to be picked up, clutching at her dress, delays her when she's busy, looks up at her tearfully till she gives in and carries her. That's what you're like, Patroclus, shedding those big round tears. Have you got some news for the Myrmidons, or for me myself, or a message from Thea that you alone know about? Minoiteus, Actor's son, still lives, they say, and Peleus, Iacus's son, is alive there among the Myrmidons. For those two, indeed, we'd grieve sorely if they were dead. Or is your lament for the Argives, the way they're being slaughtered by the hollow ships on account of their own presumption? Speak up. Don't keep it a secret. We both should know it. Andrew. Oh, hello, Wes. Hi, how are you? What? Cockdella. <laughs> you are reading the Iliad. I am, but I just I just tricked you. I learned a, a Russian phrase and I wanted to use it. It means, <laughs> what's up? <laughs> you the response? <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> and you're reading about Patroclus. What are you finding? Indeed I am. What am I finding? Well, forgive me for imitating Hamlet, but words... Words. 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 <laughs> I, I'm, I'm finding that... Yeah, we all know where that got Right. <laughs> I'm finding that at the end of book 15, there was crazy chaos. And then when we come to book 16, Homer, Homer just drops the chaos. And everything's calm. And the whole feeling changes. But 
Achilles and Patroclus have their own little, what do you think? Is it a battle? But there's warm tears yeah, and pity yeah. and, and, and no longer killing, but pity. I find it intriguing that Achilles pity yeah, Patroclus. I, I like this. Um, I, I like this passage very much. I was glad to uh, come in on you reading it, um, because one of the uh, one of the things that strikes me when I read this um, is uh, Patroclus suddenly shows up, and because the Iliad is so uh, is so long, it's such a, a massive work. Um, we have forgotten that uh, uh, where, where Patroclus was. He shows up, and we kind of come to our senses, and oh yeah, Patroclus, because um, in this in the story we haven't seen him since I, the end of I think it's Book Eleven, where he encounters Nestor, and Nestor gives him a suggestion to go back to Achilles and and do this and that, and then Homer drops him, and in twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen we have uh, the battle around the wall, and we have uh, Hera and Poseidon getting involved. And then in 15, we have the tremendous chaos you just mentioned. And then suddenly Patroclus shows up. But um, if uh, I, I, made it, I made a little note to myself, uh, and uh, with a little smiley face, sort of, with a beard on it, because I have a beard. Uh, and a uh, <laughs> note to myself, that Patroclus has been, uh, we last saw him with Nestor uh, further up the beach, up the camp, four books ago. And so what has Patroclus been doing for, during all these four books? Has he been walking slowly toward Achilles' tent? But it helps to keep the big structure of the story in mind to remember when we last saw him and where he's come from so that we're not surprised and think, oh, Patroclus, brilliant. what a radical shift. That's brilliant. So tell me, what do you think Patroclus has been doing since book 11? Well, um, one one thing that, that occurs to me, it, it, it might be that books uh, 12 through 15 were happening around the same time that we have two parallel, chronologically parallel threads. Uh, that's a possibility. Another possibility is I think Homer suggests, they'd have to go back and look, but I think Homer suggests at the end of book 11, that, but the Patroclus, after talking with Nestor, uh, stops and spends time with some of the wounded heroes because a bunch of heroes get wounded in book 11, including his friends, some of his friends, uh, uh, Minoidios and some of the others. So I think I think maybe what he's doing, Homer suggests that he's uh, out of compassion, stopping and visiting the Red Cross tent where his wounded buddies are, and 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 that's what where he is during uh, the events of twelve through fifteen. Fascinating, fascinating because because one of the things that that I I'm trying to remember where I heard this phrase, but they call books twelve through fifteen or this day they call it the longest day, and isn't isn't pretty well all of this from 12 through 15 in the morning uh it is at the beginning of book 11 day uh, day dawns and 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 actually uh, evening won't fall until uh until book 18 when news comes to achilles about patroclus so all of this is in the first part of a first part of a day first half of a day i think the mid the middle of the day comes is it in book 16 it might be so yeah a lot of stuff has happened just in the, the hours since dawn so 11 to 18 is all one day. Yeah. Amazing. And, uh, and that's, that's another one of the advantages of, of, uh, of course, the first time you read the Iliad, uh, you just plunge through. It's like listening to a symphony the first time. You don't worry about the structure. You don't worry about the details. You just, you just take it in, let it wash over you. And then you can go back and take your CD home and listen to it over and over again, listen to parts. And the same thing here. If we, if we, if we get the big structure in mind, then we have, um, um, th then we start noticing things like, oh, uh, books two through seven were all one day. Books 11 through 18 were all one day. And we realize that as much as happens in these books, um, not, not a lot of time is passing. 
this is a lot of activity and not very much time. Huh. Homer doesn't I, seem. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was just going to say, I, I think um, uh, something people people point out that something like from the beginning of book one to the end of book twenty four, something like you know a few weeks pass, five or six weeks, but actually most of that time passes in the uh, at the end of book one when we discover that uh, Zeus is off feasting with the Ethiopians and Thetis can't go make a request yet. So really, the entire most of the vast majority of the, of the action in the Iliad takes place in just a few days. Yeah, as I recall, the beginning of the Iliad has a, an event followed by either 10 or 12 days of no, no narrative. And the end of the Iliad is 12 days followed by an event. So yeah. I think it has a chronologically, what they call a chiastic structure. Yeah. And I think that the, from day one of book one to whatever it is at the end of book 24, I think there's 55 total days. Yeah, But I believe we only actually see four or five days yeah. some scholar out there somebody who loves homer is going to be able to correct that exactly but but we see only a very few days yeah in this 10-year war and that's to me that's very significant yeah i don't know why <laughs> but we can take it by faith that it is yeah yeah and so so 11 to 18 out of 24 books that puts you from the middle book which is 12 or so um, to three quarters of the way through being this focused, concentrated day where an awful lot happens to prepare for the very last portion of the book. Yeah. I'm glad you brought in symphonies. Why is that? Well, because, because uh, you know, music is so formal. If you're not a formal person at, at, at all, you just don't like music, right? Because <laughs> that's what music is. It's sound forms. Uh -huh. And we add lyrics to it, so either so you can remember it, or so that you can put emotion or words to the feelings, or whatever. But music is so formal, and 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 really complex music corresponds to something like Homer. And so, what I'm thinking here is now we did talk about in a previous session the the structure of the Iliad, but what I'm thinking right now is. If we could identify the major movements of the Iliad, that might help us talk about it. It also might help people read it. Uh -huh. So I'm wondering what you think of that. I, I, as I recall, we had proposed, that I did anyway, I dogmatically insisted, that there's basically three sections to the Iliad. Uh -huh. And that they, they're, they're paralleled, this is, this is my hypothesis, that they're paralleled by the the beginning, the, what do you call that again? The prolegomena? Exordium. No, the um, prohymium, prologue? Exordium. Exordium? Yeah, all the Prohymium? above. Okay. Um, yeah. At where Homer says, and you've read this, I think, in, in, these, in these sessions, where Homer says, and, and it's important to say, Homer is addressing, well, the, the, the muse. Homer hmm. says, wrath, goddess, sing of Achilles, Peleus' sons, calamitous wrath which hit the Achaeans with countless ills. And then there's two more lines of that. And then he says, and the plan of Zeus was fulfilled. Or in Lattimore, the uh -huh. Zeus was moving toward its end. And I, my hypothesis is that the structure of the book has already been reflected right there, that in, in each section, we're going to read about the wrath of Achilles at the beginning, and it's going to be 
ended by by the will of Zeus being established. And now, okay. of course, throughout each section, you're seeing both the wrath of Achilles and its effects and the will of Zeus. But but Homer sort of begins each section by highlighting the wrath of Achilles and ends each section by highlighting the will of Zeus. So my my suggestion then is that we, in this podcast right now, that you and I test my hypothesis. I'll try to make my case and you can challenge it if you like. And then um, we'll, we'll look at the three sections and that maybe will help people get an overview of the whole Iliad as well as um, maybe, maybe it can help them sort of locate themselves in the yeah. Iliad. Because even if I'm wrong, it'll help people know where they stand in relation to the story. And and, and yeah. let me add this: that eight books is easier to keep your place in than twenty-four. <laughs> that's that's true. That's true. No, I agree. I agree with you. I like I like that idea. Uh, and uh, we immediately run into a difficulty here, Andrew. Uh-oh. Yeah, <clears throat> the difficulty is that I agree with you. I'm sorry to say, um, you jerk. Attrition rising up in me already. Uh, I as as long. <laughs> as long as I have been teaching the Iliad, which is 25 years or so, um, I've been teaching it in three parts broken up, broken up that way. Um, what I hadn't seen until a few years ago, and I haven't and, and, and hadn't seen it put it quite as clearly as you, uh, is uh, what now, uh, now that you've said it, it seems fairly obvious uh, that uh, the beginning and end of each section reflects that of those opening lines, as, as you said. That we have the beginning of each of the sections with the um, uh, 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 beginning with the wrath of Achilles and ending with the will of Zeus, um, and so um, although as as, mu- as as much as I would like to make you happy and argue contentiously with you, which is what my last name means, contentious, I can't. I find really? I, I, it does. Callahan means contentious, yeah, disputatious. Um, you know, maybe obnoxious. I don't know. That's awesome. It, it, it originated with some 10th century low-level uh, uh, lord in Southern Ireland who apparently was always a, a you know a fly in the ointment of one of the Irish kings. <laughs> so, so you know what my last name is? <laughs> what what is that? My my last name is Kern K E R N, and it's a German word that basically means the center of the universe. That seems appropriate. <laughs> I, so I think it's actually. <laughs> and well, now I feel the contentious part of me kicking in. Okay, good, good. That's what I was going for. <laughs> There's also a tribe called the Kerns, or a group of tribes called the Kerns in Shakespeare. I think in Macbeth, they're they're an Irish tribe of of savage, out of control people. So. <laughs> well, figures, the Irish often think they're the center of the universe. So that's why they get drunk so much, just to to avoid that feeling. That's their <laughs> Christian bet. response. Oh, so uh, I I. I have seen for a long time because I think it's fairly apparent in the structure of the three parts that the whole Iliad's divided into. But I, f- I find myself um, uh, persuaded immediately by your uh, assertion that the beginning and end of each part is the anger of Achilles at the beginning and the will of Zeus at the end. Because I can um, thinking about those three parts, I can see those, and I think that's a, a nice way of tying it in to the exordium. So much to our chagrin, I, I agree with you. <laughs> well, maybe what we should do is try to be useful for the for the podcast listeners, and let's let's look at each section and show how this is the case. I mean, I hate that okay. we can't have a fight here, but um, let, <laughs> I, 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 I every back, time we turn around, peace keeps breaking out. Darn it! 
Yeah. What the heck? <laughs> Call this a classical education? Um, okay. That sounds like a good idea. In fact, yeah. how can this be? Because in line six of the of book one, this is the line. From the first moment, those two men parted in fury. <laughs> this is a book about well, men parting in fury, not getting along. Come well, on. Because in the... In- in lines eight and nine, it says what God set them, what God set them together in bitter collision. We don't have Apollo around to force us into contention. You know, the, maybe the, that's we, the thing. I think that's, I think that's it. And it's a good thing we have too. A God of peace. Yes, we do. Huh? I like that. All right. Yeah. I'll be at peace with you then. <laughs> okay, okay, good. You're my brother. Well, yeah, Thanks. I like, I like your idea. Let's look at the three sections. I think that would be useful. And instructive. Well, okay. Helpful. So then let's let, let's take a brief look at the at the opening that I read. Brief, productive, and helpful. Is that what you said? Productive. Okay. So so I, I it's so ironic though, isn't it? Because will you be quiet? <laughs> I had to find some way of making you mad. Yeah. Because <laughs> the first word is wrath, right? Wrath yeah. goddess, yeah. sing of Achilles, Peleus' sons, calamitous wrath, which hit the Achaeans with countless ills. And then it talks about them, you know, their, judge, their, their souls going to Hades and all that. Yeah. So, and, and then from the first moment, those two men parted in fury. So now we, we've got the theme, or at least we've got the driving energy of the book, which is wrath and it's manus. It's, it's Achilles' almost divine wrath. And so... Each book, sorry, books one, nine, and 16 all involve Achilles' wrath deepening or yeah. modifying. Yeah. Or in some way, Achilles is, is drawn into the action. Yeah. So how does, give me, give me book one. How does it happen in book one? Now, we've talked about this in former podcasts, but so concisely, mm-hmm. what happens in book one that leads to Achilles having a fit? Well, uh, in in book one, um, there's there's a uh, <clears throat> there's there's a problem that um, uh, that ar- that arises uh, that that uh, that the story opens on sort of in, in medias race. Uh, <clears throat> the men had in some uh, in some re- relatively insignificant the 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 the, the Achaean men in a relatively insignificant raid down the beach probably in a moment of boredom and looking for entertainment raided some village killed some men captured some women one of the girls was the daughter of the priest of Apollo and he comes to the Achaean camp to to try and ransom her back and Agamemnon uh, uh, rudely cruelly and angrily refuses him repulses the old man sends him away and the old man goes away and prays to Apollo for vengeance and Apollo comes down and starts slaughtering the men in the camp. Um, they, they're falling from a plague, dying by a plague in the Greek, in camp, the Greek yeah. camp. So the so the, the the men gather together and ask the uh, the, the the priest, uh, the, the the prophet Calchas, what's going on. And he says, "Well, I can't tell you because as soon as I name the guy whose fault it is, he's going to be angry." And Achilles says, "Don't worry, I'll protect you, even if you mean Agamemnon." And Calchas goes, "Yeah, that's the guy." Uh, and so, so in this assembly, uh, it turns out that Agamemnon has offended Apollo by not returning the girl. The men then, led by Achilles, which is the problem, Achilles becomes kind of a lightning rod. Uh, the men, led by Achilles, ask uh, Agamemnon to return the girl who, was, uh, who had been a battle prize awarded to him. And they say, don't worry if you have to give up the girl. We will make it, we, we will, uh, we'll make it up to you um, several times over. You won't have lost out on your due meed of honor by giving the girl back. 
But Agamemnon, being the hothead he is, uh, flies him into a rage. He, he, this is unacceptable, even though he's been promised that they'll make it right. And so then he says, all right, fine, but I'm going to take away your girl, Achilles. He turns to Achilles because Achilles is leading this, this discussion. Uh, the, the men, I'm going to take your girl, Achilles, see how you like that. And he makes no offer of restoring, uh, of, of, of making up for the girl. He's going to take her away. Uh, and this, uh, uh, this is a terrible dishonor for Achilles, as we've talked about before and probably will talk about again. And so he withdraws in a huff, angry at Agamemnon and vows not to fight anymore. So that's how the, that's how his anger, uh, uh, he's angry at Agamemnon for dishonoring him. Uh, in a way that I think um, uh, he's, he's, uh, Achilles' anger is justified here at this point in the story. He's angry at Agamemnon for dishonoring him, refuses to fight, and, and that generates then everything that's going to happen in the rest of this section, in fact, in the whole of the, of the poem. Agamemnon's dishonored Achilles, irrationally, too, by the way. Yeah. Huh. Huh. So Ag- Ag- Agamemnon is, uh, is, is, a, is a hothead. He's one of those guys, and we all know people like this. He's one of those guys who gets angry, angry really quickly, but then it gets over it quickly. And the next day, he's like, what? You're still mad about that? That was yesterday. Achilles is the other kind of person. I'm afraid I, I tend to be more like this, and there's, I know lots of people this way. He doesn't get angry easily, but when he does, he gets cold and silent, doesn't talk, and he holds onto it for a long, long time. And the conflict yeah. between those two personalities uh, um, makes for – uh, makes for a lot of what's going to happen when we get to the end of this first section. Uh-huh. So the energy of the book from one perspective is anger. It drives for the plot and everything. One of the things that, that I'd like over time to do as we discuss this, and not necessarily in this podcast, but but to really explore what is it that Achilles is angry about? I mean, yeah. he's told us in story form, but, but what does it tell us about ourselves? Yeah. And there's... I think, and there's there's more more to the backstory be, behind why Achilles is angry and why I think it's justified. That I think is helpful in doing what you're suggesting, trying to apply this to ourselves as well. Huh. Well, let me let me put that on hold or bracket it for now. I definitely want to talk about it at some point. But I'm in my hypothesis. Book one it launches Achilles' anger, but book eight shows Zeus re obtaining control or establishing his will. So if you don't mind, I'm going to jump to book eight and you want to yeah. read it or you want me to read again? Cause I got to read at the opening of our, this, this. Uh, where, where are we, where are we going to? I'll read the very, this. The very beginning of book eight. Now dawn the yellow robe scattered over all the earth. Zeus, who joys in the thunder, made an assembly of all the immortals upon the highest peak of rugged Olympus. There he spoke to them himself, and the other divinities listened. Hear me, all you gods and all you goddesses. Hear me while I speak forth what the heart within my breast urges. Now let no female divinity nor male god either presume to cut across the way of my word, but consent to it, all of you, so that I can make an end in speed of these matters. And anyone I perceive against the gods' will attempting to go among the Trojans and help them, or among the Danaeans, he shall go whipped against his dignity back to Olympus, or I shall take him and dash him down to the murk of Tartaros far below, where the uttermost depth of the pit lies under earth, where there are gates of iron and a brazen doorstone, as far beneath the house of Hades as from earth uh, the sky lies. Then he will see how far I am strongest of all the immortals. Come, you gods, make this endeavor that uh, that you all may learn this. <clears throat> and by the way, we could go back since the, 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 the point here is Zeus concluding this section. I think it's there where he says in line nine, consent to what I'm going to tell you so that I can make an end in speed of these matters. Yeah. 
Yeah, excellent. Read the picture he uses here to show how powerful he is. Uh, Come you gods, make this endeavor that you all may learn this. Let down out of the sky a cord of gold. Lay hold of it, all you who are gods and all who are goddesses. Yet not even so can you drag down Zeus from the sky to the ground. Not Zeus, the high lord of counsel, though you try until you grow weary. Yet whenever I might strongly be minded to pull you, I could drag you up earth and all and sea and all with you. Then fetch the golden rope about the horn of Olympus and make it fast so that once more, all once more should dangle in midair. So much stronger am I than the gods and stronger than mortals." Which, of course, is words, but what's the response? What's the next line? <laughs> yeah, so he spoke, and all of them stayed stricken to silence, stunned at his word, for indeed he had spoken to them very strongly. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think what we see here in, in Book 8 is he's taking control again, and he's telling the gods. Now, we, we didn't get a chance to talk about Books 2 through 7 and all the stuff that happens during this section, but at least we've got a sense now that at the beginning, Achilles is enraged. All kinds of conflict happens, led apparently by Apollo. But even Apollo is being used by Zeus to accomplish his ends. I like the lines you brought up, book, yeah. book nine, eight and nine. Make an attempt to thwart my scheme is what is the way Peter Green translated it. Make an attempt to thwart my scheme, hmm. but all alike assent to it, so I may speedily bring these things to pass. <laughs> And thus, and then book eight plays that out, you know. Now, in section two, that's book nine. And some people, actually, well, some people don't think book 10 belongs in, in the Iliad. I think they're mad, but we'll get to that later. But what happens in book nine that, that where, where Achilles is then aroused to action in some way? Yeah. If not to action, at least to a decision. Yeah, well, in, in book nine, um, Agamemnon has uh, uh, has uh, come around uh, and um, uh, makes an offer to Achilles to restore his honor, which is what Achilles said that he wanted, <clears throat> uh, that he was going to withdraw from the fighting until until the Achaeans had learned their lesson that they needed him. And so Agamemnon uh, s- sends a message via Odysseus and a couple of others to Achilles' camp, uh, offering a, a magnificent uh, a gift uh, of uh, you know uh, prizes and women and land and wives and so and so on, uh, which Achilles uh, rejects. And so um, uh, so you're, you're you're right. He 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 makes the decision here, and the decision is to continue on in his uh, in his uh, uh, inaction to stay in the camp, to not to come out to fight. For him, uh, for him, uh, he he's not ready. He's he's in a he's uh, now in a position where. Even though Agamemnon has done ostensibly what Achilles asked for, uh, Achilles will continue not to fight until further, um, uh, until until further developments. And if people, so, if, go ahead. Yeah. Well, well I, so I just I guess to to, to try and wrap that uh, wrap that up. Uh, you you um, um, your hypothesis, which we're testing and which I agree with, is is that uh, the action of Book Nine. Achilles' wrath in Book 9 drives what happens next, and it does by him continuing, I think, uh, in my opinion, un- unjustifiably, which we can talk about later. Uh-huh. But he, his, his, his decision to continue to stay out of the fighting will result in further developments of the next section, which will become tragic. Well, happily, we have a conflict now, because in, in Book 9, well, let me back up a step. The conflict is between you and me. I believe Achilles is justified in what he does. I also believe that Achilles does change his mind. And here's what I mean. 
in, in the beginning of book nine, Achilles has decided he's leaving. Agamemnon sends three men to him. Each of, and this is really great. This is where a side application, if you like, this is where Homer becomes a teacher to the Greeks. He sends three different men who present three different kinds of speech mm-hmm. based on three different um, forms of proof. Odysseus gives a speech more or less based on Logos. Mm-hmm. Um, Phoenix gives a speech based on pathos or emotion and Ajax gives a speech based on ethos or character. Ajax says, I have nothing to say to you. I'm a great soldier. That's all there is to it. And that that's the one that interestingly seems to persuade Achilles the most. But, and practically this is the, the plot point, as each person gives their speech, Achilles changes his mind a little bit so that by the time they're done, he has said, okay, I will stay. And I think, doesn't he also say at that point, no, he's not sending Patroclus into battle, but he has decided to stay uh-huh. and, and, to, and to view the fight. And I think given that context, that's a pretty good accomplishment by those three guys. They didn't get what they wanted, but they got what was most necessary. Uh, having him stay? Yeah. Well, that's, that's true, uh, uh, but that's a, that's a different thing from saying that he's justified in, uh, in, dis, in, in, in continuing to not fight. Well, that's a bigger argument that we can't get into now. I'll take you down on that one later. <laughs> I look forward to it. <laughs> Apollo is visiting me. So, so, um, so, so, so in other words, what we're, what's happening in book nine is that is that Achilles' wrath is renewed because he because we have not seen much of Achilles at all in two through eight. That's one thing we couldn't get into. But through that whole yeah. first section, Achilles has been withdrawn and silent in his tent when we get or, or or house really. When we get to book nine, they approach. He's playing his harp, singing songs about heroes, and then they talk to him, and he he's featured for a book. But from 9 through, and I'm suggesting 15 is the end of the second section, from 9 through 15, he's still, he's still not there. He's not in the battle. He's, he's at his house, but he's not in the battle. So now let's go to book 15. Or did you want to say, did you want to read anything from book 9? Uh, uh, no, we can do that. Uh, we can do that later. Uh, let's okay. keep going. We've got about three minutes left. So what I want to do is, is look at book 15 and then we'll, we'll end on this. And in the next session, we'll, we'll, we'll quickly talk about section three, which is, man, I mean, I've heard it called the most perfect poetry ever written. So we're going to have to really exercise self-control and talk about book three briefly. And then, and then we'll come back and talk about book one more closely. Okay. But in book 15... Um, once again, Zeus arouses, arouses himself. Do you want to you read book 15, the beginning? Sure. But after they had crossed back over the ditch and the sharp stakes in flight, and many had gone down under the hands of the Danaeans, they checked about once more and stood their ground by the chariots, green for fear and terrified. But now Zeus, wakened by Hera of the gold throne on the high places of Ida, and stood suddenly upright and saw the Achaeans and Trojans, these driven to flight, the others harrying them in confusion. <clears throat> these last Argives, these last Argives, and saw among them the Lord Poseidon. He saw Hector lying in the plain, his companions sitting around him. He dazed at the heart and breathing painfully, vomiting blood since not the weakest Achaean had hit him. 
Then the father of gods and men, seeing Hector, pitied him and looked scowling terribly at Hera and spoke a word to her. Hopeless one, it was your evil design, your treachery, Hera, that stayed brilliant Hector from battle, terrified his people. I do not know, perhaps for this contrivance of evil and pain, you will win first reward when I lash you with whip strokes. Do you not remember that time you hung from high and on your feet I slung two anvils, and about your hands drove a golden chain unbreakable? You among the clouds and the bright sky hung, nor could the gods about tall Olympus endure it, and stood about but could not set you free. If I caught one, I would seize and throw him from the threshold until he landed stunned on the earth. Yet even so, the weariless agony for Heracles the godlike would not let go my spirit. You with the north wind's aid, winning over the storm winds, drove him on across the desolate sea in evil intention. And then on these swept him away to cost the strong founded. I myself rescued him there and brought him back once more to horse-pasturing Argos when he had been through much hardship. I will remind you of all this, so you will give up your deceptions. See if your love-making in bed will help you. That way you lay with me apart from the gods and deceived me. So he spoke, and the ox-eyed Lady Hera shivered. Um, there again we see, now in, in this case, Hera has deceived Zeus to take control and thwarted short-term the will of Zeus, and now He's awakened, sees what's going on, and raises the theme of memory, which is such a big deal in, in Homer. Um, yeah. But, Hera, don't you remember? I will remind you. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but he's aroused to action again. So he's, he's calling, he, he's, he's re-entering the battle because he doesn't want the Trojans routed by the Greeks at this point. And so book 15 shows the result of, of Zeus re-entering the battle. Do you notice that in both um, 8 and 15, not, sorry, um, yeah, 8 and 15, Zeus refers to hanging gods by golden chains? Mm, yeah, interesting. I've never noticed that before. Yeah. <laughs> now that's a theme, uh, an, obsession, an obsession of Zeus. Golden <laughs> chains, yeah. Maybe that's just like a mark of power and vanity of people having golden chains it might be but that but that uh, that that phrase has a resonance down through history too doesn't it i mean as, as late as the as late as the early modern world in shakespeare's time uh the uh, co cosmology was often depicted uh as um uh, as a golden chain uh, the great chain ah. of being uh, and uh, Milton, that, that, that phrase uh, um, was resonating in my mind now with uh, Milton at the end of book two, when Satan flies out of Hades and uh, hell and flies through, through chaos and, and breaks out into the, into the, in the clear space and sees uh, heaven and earth, this new creation of God that he's determined to corrupt. And he sees uh, the, uh, the, the, the universe uh, hanging below heaven uh, in a golden chain, he says. Huh. Wow. I'm not sure what to make Beautiful. of that. I just think it's really cool. Yeah. That's good enough. <laughs> yeah, Unfortunately, we're at we're at about 36 or 37 minutes and we're supposed okay. to stop at 30 and we're probably losing listeners. So, yep. let's do this. Let's let's end and and then let's as soon as we can, let's get back together again and let's talk about section 3, which I'm proposing is 16 to 24, and then and then let's go back to book one, or books one to eight, and talk about that section a little more closely. Okay. How's that sound? That sounds good to me. All right. See you shortly. All right. Thanks, Andrew. May the Lord remember you and his kingdom. 
Thank you. God bless you. And you. 